Again, it's Revelation chapter 21. Now, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There should be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There should be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the angels, who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and twelve angels at the gates, and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city was laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The foundation was of jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, chalcedony, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, sardius, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, the eleventh, jacinth, the twelfth, amethyst. The gates were... 12 pearls. Each individual gate was a one pearl, and the street of the city was a pure gold like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. The nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. The gate shall not be shut by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. But there shall be by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's pray. Father God, we just come to the name of Jesus, and we thank you so much. That first of all, heaven is real, and that you've made a way for us to be there and to join you there. And that God is so wonderful and beautiful, and that you are so amazing. God, just help us to hear what you would have us to hear today and to apply it to our lives. 
And God, help us to be excited about what the future holds and to tell others about it as well. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Terry. Instrumentalists appreciate that, and that is certainly true as we continue in our series on life after death. Our hope is in what Terry just sang about. There is no one like Jesus. He is our rock, He is our shield, He is our Savior, and He is alive. And so as we continue in our series here, depending on your final destination, your death will either be a friend or it will be your foe. As we learned last week, if you die without trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will begin your eternity in a terrible place that we learned about last Sunday called hell. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, one who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and His atonement, His sacrifice, His payment for our penalty on the cross in the resurrection, you will begin your eternity in a place so incredible, we can only imagine what it will be like. In heaven, you will meet Christ, and you will be introduced to the company of the redeemed, and you will be overwhelmed by the wonder of God's glory. As you begin to explore your new home in heaven, after all, this is where you will spend eternity, and so it's, it's worth a look, it's worth exploring. In fact, you begin to recall the words of Jesus Christ to his disciples in John chapter 14, where he comforts his disciples, he gives them the comfort of heaven, the hope of heaven, with these words, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And so as you begin to explore your new home in heaven, what do you see? What is heaven like? And that is the questions we want to answer this morning. In fact, in the book of Revelation, the passage that Kevin read for us here in Revelation 21, we have one of the most vivid descriptions found anywhere in the Scriptures. And so in a vision by God, the Apostle John, if you can imagine this with me, is taken up on a guided tour of heaven, which he records for us, for our benefits, in the book of Revelation. And so I invite you, I encourage you, buckle your seatbelts. You're in for a ride. It's like going to Disney World. You strap in. We just had a family come back. And you strap into that roller coaster, and man, you are off and going. And that's what it's going to be like this morning. And so one of the first questions people often ask about heaven is, where is heaven located? And the most obvious answer is the correct answer. It is located up. Heaven is a real place on God's map, and it's located up. In fact, the very name of heaven means up. The Bible words translated heaven basically means great heights, or the highest height, or a place that is highly lifted up. And so by its very name, we can conclude that heaven is raised up, it is elevated to the highest point in all of God's creation. In other words, heaven is at the apex of the universe in the third heavens. 
We know there are three, and it's in the third heavens there where we will gather with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what will it be like? Well, notice this in your notes. Number one, the picture of heaven is incredible. The picture that we find here in Revelation 21, the picture that is given to John the Apostle is incredible. Because what John records will boggle your mind. This picture of heaven far exceeds the grandest and most glorious thoughts we can ever imagine. And what John sees on his personal tour of heaven is incredible. In fact, it's breathtaking. It's like nothing the human eye has ever seen. So what does John see here in this vision that God grants to him here in chapter 21? Well, first of all, John sees, quote, the new heaven and the new earth. Notice what it says in verse 1 of Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And so while the first creation, by the way, that's where we are now, is what we're living on now, the first earth, while the first creation will be destroyed, it will not be annihilated. Rather, it will be transformed into something new, just as we have become a new creation in Christ. And it will be incredible. And so that's the very first thing that John sees, but he sees something else. He observes that there was no more sea in the new heaven, in the new earth. Why? Well, what do the seas contain? Well, obviously, the seas contain life, but they also contain death and separation. The seas have taken thousands of lives throughout history. We've seen examples of that here just in recent years, in the last 10, 20 years, with hurricanes and shipwrecks. The seas also act as vast barriers dividing the human race. But no more in the new heaven and new earth. No more geographical barriers to separate us. And no more violent storms to bury its victims. But John goes on and he sees something else. He sees what must have startled him, like something out of a sci-fi movie. This is amazing. Look at it in verse 2. In John's own words, he says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, let that just blow your mind away. John saw the new Jerusalem. And some believe, according to what we will read later on, as big as a continent floating through space and descending down out of heaven. Now that's incredible. I can't even begin to really comprehend that. And if, we're going, if we were reading about this on the internet, we would say it was, quote, fake news. But this is not fake news. This is real news. It's true because we're reading it out of God's Word. But wait, here's what makes the picture of heaven even more incredible. And this is what I really want us to focus on. This is where you can fill in your blanks there, your notes if you want to. Notice, first of all, heaven's preparation for us. It's like a bride prepared for her husband. Notice how John describes the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven in verse 2. He says, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. In just... You know, stop there for a moment on that image. When Jesus told his disciples that he was going to prepare a place for them, he's referring to this city that John has seen. Think about it. If God created this beautiful world, which is marred by sin, by the way, in six days, just think how incredible this city must be if he has been working on it for over 2,000 years. 
And I just love the word picture here that John then uses to describe the beauty of our new home in heaven, like a bride prepared for her husband. And I can't think of a more beautiful picture than this. I mean, what is prettier than the sight of a bride walking down the aisle to her groom? It's amazing. I mean, everybody comes to a wedding to see who? The bride, surely not the groom. They could care less about the groom. It's the bride. It's her day. And she's prepared for this day. As a pastor, I've had the privilege of performing a few weddings. And I always, I always get a, uh, a chuckle. I always enjoy after glancing at the bride, you then glance at the groom as the groom is normally standing right here. And you glance at his face as the bride walks down the aisle here, and his face just lights up, especially if it's the first time that he's seen her bride or his bride in her gown, and they haven't taken pictures beforehand. I mean, he is all aglow, and he's thinking to myself, I cannot believe I'm so lucky to have to marry this woman. I know that's what I thought as I stood here 26 years ago, this coming Thursday, and, uh, and saw my beautiful bride walking down this aisle. I thought I had literally died and went to heaven. Darla, I still think that about you. You are the most, oh, I know. It's Mother's Day. I'm chalking up some points here. I do. I, I, it's, 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 it's unbelievable. And so just like the, a beautiful bride coming down the aisle for her husband, that's how beautiful heaven is going to be. Heaven's preparation. And Jesus is there now preparing this place for us. Number two, we see heaven's promise. And that is God will dwell with his people forever. Now, this is the best part about heaven. Listen, after my wife and I got married, like most married couples, we were, well, we didn't have a lot. And we had this humble little apartment, and we barely had a lot of any furniture in it. And there, you know what made that apartment, that two-bedroom apartment, such a great place to go to after work and after school? Is my bride was there. And that's what it's going to be like. God himself is going to dwell with us. Notice this in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And so what John is telling us is that God will move into the new Jerusalem and he will live with all believers in intimate, continuous fellowship for all eternity. Blows your mind. Because right now, God dwells within our hearts by the Holy Spirit. But in heaven, God himself will dwell in our midst. He will live with us among us, just as Jesus was sent to the earth, born of the Virgin Mary, to dwell among humanity. And we get to dwell with God forever. This is why God, by the way, has redeemed us through his son, death, and resurrection. This is God's ultimate purpose. It's where history is going towards. God's presence, dwelling with God's people in God's place for God's purpose. That's where we are moving in history. This, the third incredible thing to notice about heaven is heaven's peace. No more tears, no more sorrow, pain, death, or sin. You know, suffering is a universal language. It's the common denominator 
of all human life. And as long as we live in this sinful world, sorrow will cloud our hearts, tears will fill our eyes, and death will consume our lives. And some of you right here know what I'm speaking about. You know it firsthand. You know what it's like to have nagging physical pain. You know what it's like to experience great sorrow within your own family. You know what it's like to face the pain of losing a loved one in death. We sometimes forget in this life how to laugh, but we never forget how to cry, do we? Not until we enter heaven. Only in heaven will the Lord, once and for all, wipe away our tears of disappointment and pain. Notice what John writes in verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. And there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Think about it. In heaven, death will be a thing of the past. Woohoo! right? There will be no graves in the hillside of heaven. There will be no obituaries to write with that person that you go to when you make burial preparations for your loved one. And they ask you, what do you want to put in the obituary? You won't even have to think about that. There will be no funeral processions over the streets of gold. And perhaps the greatest piece of all is that there will be no more sin, no more temptation to sin. John tells us in verse 27 that there shall by no means enter it, that is heaven, anything defiles it or that causes an abomination or a lie. And the reason there will be no more tears, sorrow, pain, death, or sin in heaven is because the former things have passed away. And then I love what God says in verse 5. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. In other words, you can bank on them. This is where we are going. For those of us in Jesus Christ, this is our final destination. Are you ready for it? Are you getting ready for it? Number four, heaven's population. Only believers in Jesus Christ. Mark Twain once said, I'll take heaven for its climate and hell for its company. I wish I could ask Mark Twain, well, who then is in the company of hell that you think you're going to enjoy? Notice what it says in verses 6 through 8. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But notice what comes next. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now look again at this list in verse 8 of the types of people who won't be in heaven. If we were writing this list, we would probably put murderers at the top of the list. That's our natural inclination. But what types of people does God first list? He says the cowardly and the unbelieving, which simply describes the fearful and the faithless. And then God even lists idolaters and liars and idolater. 
In other words, someone who, who puts things and people before God, liars. Listen, I, whoa, I told a lie. Does this mean I can't go to heaven? That I won't enter heaven? God won't let me come in? Well, I like what one commentator, he sheds light on this when he writes, and I quote, listen, people who are characterized by any of these eight traits listed here will be in the lake of fire. And thus, excluded from heaven. Notice that the text does not say, though, that anyone who has ever committed any of these sins will be excluded, but rather, people whose lives are characterized in these ways. There is a difference, for instance, in ever telling a lie and being a liar as the habits of one's life and who is unrepentant of that. Never humbles themselves before God to ask for His forgiveness. God, make me clean again. It's these things that characterize people's lives. They will not be there. Aren't you thankful for the grace of God that is transforming even now our sinful character into godly character? That's the proof that we're overcomers. We persevere in the faith. We stand firm for Jesus to the very end. In fact, John reminds us in verse 7 that he who overcomes shall inherit all these things that John is seeing. Perhaps you're wondering, how do I know for sure that I'm going to die and go to heaven? How do I know that I'm a true believer? Oh, we're going to answer that question over the summer. We're going to begin that in two weeks from today as we dive into the book of 1 John. And John gives us all these evidences, if you will, of what real faith is. Evidences of eternal life. How you can know for sure that you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And that when you die, you are going to heaven. Who will be in heaven? The humblest sinner who repents of his sin. This is who will be there. All who put their faith in Christ alone will be allowed to enter God's incredible heaven. What will heaven be like? Oh, we can only imagine. Two Christians lived very healthy lives, and when they died, they went to heaven. And as they walked along, marveling at the paradise around them, one of the men turned to the other and said, Wow, I never imagined heaven would be, would be as good as this. Oh, yeah, agreed the other. And just think, if we hadn't eaten all that oat bran, we could have gotten here ten years sooner. <laughs> Don't you just feel that way sometimes? What's the, what's the point, man? I want to get to heaven. I can't wait to get there. John's panoramic view of heaven is incredible. And as John continues his personal tour of heaven, what he sees is also indescribable. And yet through the gift of the Holy Spirit, John describes glimpses of it here for us in Revelation. Notice number two, the grandeur of heaven. The grand, or you can even write the greatness of heaven. It is indescribable. And yet this is exactly what John does for us. He describes in detail the grandeur and greatness of heaven. Now, there are mansions, and then there are mansions. And George Vanderbilt definitely built a big, humongous mansion, now known as the Biltmore Estate in North Carolina. In fact, the picture should be coming up of it set out to build the grandest home in America, and armed with an unlimited budget, the result was mind-boggling. 
for six years. And this began in 1888. An army of skilled workers labored to create this country estate. A walk through this mansion reveals a house beyond anyone's wildest imagination. It boasts, listen to this, four acres of floor space. Four acres. A total of 250 rooms. 34 master bedrooms. 43 bathrooms. Jim, you never have to share it with your daughters. Glorious thing. 65 fireplaces, three kitchens, an indoor swimming pool, and a gymnasium. And when it opened, it was immediately claimed as the greatest house in the Western Hemisphere. But despite its greatness, even the Biltmore Estate, it pales in comparison to the architectural accomplishments of Jesus Christ in heaven. Remember, Jesus was a carpenter here on earth, and now he is a carpenter in heaven. And that's why Jesus told his disciples, I go to do what? Prepare a place for you. In the unseen world above, Jesus is building a home that will overshadow anything ever built by human hands. What kind of indescribable place is Jesus preparing? How does it compare to the finest estates in the world? Well, notice what John records here in verses 9 and 10. It says, then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls filled with seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, come. In other words, an angel is showing John heaven in this vision. Come, let me show you something. You think you've seen this? Let me show you something else. Let me show you something that's really going to blow your mind. Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Do you get the picture? What's going on here? This is a repeat of what John has just seen earlier in the chapter. But now he's looking at the new Jerusalem from a different perspective from the top of a high mountain. And what John sees of heaven is indescribable from a human standpoint. Now, we don't have time to go into it. There's a lot here, but let me just highlight for us two things about the, the greatness of heaven, the grandeur of this new city. Number one, see the magnificent beauty of the new Jerusalem. First and foremost, John is struck by the sheer glory of God's dwelling place. Listen to this. Do you know what the chief characteristic of heaven is going to be? The number one characteristic of heaven that will stand head and shoulders above everything else is the glory of God. God's glory will fill it. God's glory will be manifested in it. In verse 11, John begins to describe the new Jerusalem as having the glory of God. And her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And what strikes John's attention first? Listen, it's not the size of heaven, although it's massive. It's not the grandeur, in a sense, of the stones and all that. No, no, no. It is the glory of God. This city shines like a celestial jewel with the blinding brilliance of God's glory. God's glory is beyond anything we can even imagine as it covers the new heavens with this breathtaking beauty. And what's interesting is that the building materials then of heaven are selected for the very purpose, get this, 
of magnifying God's glory. Drop down to verse 18. Notice how the new Jerusalem is this gem of a city. And the construction of its wall was of jasper. And the city was pure gold like glass, clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. And then it lists 12 different jewels. And Kevin, by the way, you did a good job pronouncing all those. Nobody knew the difference when you didn't pronounce it right. <laughs> and then continuing with verse 21. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Are any of these jewels brilliant in the dark? No. In any context, their radiance is always dependent on borrowed light. And in heaven, that light, have you thought about this? It's not the sun, it is the glory of God. All of heaven is designed to magnify and show off the glory of God. And that's why it says in verse 23, and the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it. Man, we, we get a cloudy day for two days and we're like, oh man, I'm so down, I'm so dry. Where is it going to be sunny again? There's no sun in the heaven. New earth, new heaven, no sun, no moon. But don't be disappointed by that. For the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb is its light. Are you beginning to understand what heaven is all about? It is about God and His glory, by the way, not us. Yes, we can only imagine what the beauty of heaven will be like. But the real beauty of heaven is that the glory of God will be unleashed. And that's something I can't even begin to imagine. Number two, see the massive size of the new Jerusalem. John describes the size in verses 12 through 17. Look at it with me one more time. It says, also she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and the names written on them, which are of the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its wall. And the city is laid out as a square. All right, so picture this. The city is a square. Its length is, a, is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed. 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. Now, let me try to put this in perspective for us. The size, and it's massive, of the New Jerusalem in a perspective that we can understand. First, the city seems to be laid out, as we already mentioned, as a square perfectly equal on all sides, possibly in the shape of a perfect cube, perfectly symmetrical, perfectly balanced in reflecting the perfect unity in harmony of the Trinity. Next, the angel measured the city to be 12,000 furlongs, which is approximately 
1,500 miles, which means the city is 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles high, or 2.25 million square miles at the base and height. Now, let that just soak in for a minute, and then consider this. The atmosphere of the earth is only about 100 miles in depth. If this city descended upon the earth, most of it would extend beyond the earth's atmosphere. That's how tall it is. What's more, picture an area from Miami all the way to New York, and then from Minneapolis to Houston, that's the size of the New Jerusalem, or roughly half the size of the United States. You say, what does all that mean? It means that the New Jerusalem is huge. It's bigger than we can even really comprehend, and it means there is more than enough room for all of the redeemed. For all of God's children. Remember, the city is 1,500 miles in every direction, including its height, which means there is enough room to comfortably accommodate 100,000, or I'm sorry, 100,000 billion people. In fact, a scientist by the name of Henry Morse has suggested that if 20 billion people out of the approximately 30 billion in just the history, of the world inhabited this new city we're talking about, only 25% would be used for habitation. That means each person would have about 75 acres for them, for them to spread out on. How many want to live on some property? You got it. The point is, there will be plenty of room in heaven for all of God's people. Heaven is going to be mega awesome. And as awesome as the New Jerusalem is going to be, perhaps the most awesome thing John saw on his personal tour of heaven is what the angels and the people of God were doing in heaven. You ever wonder what we're going to do? Listen, the Bible doesn't tell us everything we're going to do, but it does emphasize at least one thing we're going to do. How many of you went to the royals when they won the World Series in 2015, you went to the parade. Raise your hand. Man, good for you. Is that all that went? Nobody else went? Raise your hand again. Let me see how many. All right, that's, oh, maybe almost half the, the congregation here. And so you were among, some estimate, over 500,000 people down at Union Station and lining the streets of downtown. Now, fortunately for me, I witnessed it in the comfort of my house. My family was part of it. I was like, not for me. It was glorious watching it on TV. And as you know, the cheers and the celebration, the applause of a whole city for the royals and their accomplishment was really something to behold. It was almost unbelievable. And it caught the, our nation by surprise and, and captured the attention of, of, of certainly our city. That scene in downtown Kansas City foreshadows a scene that will be duplicated again and again and again throughout the ages to come in heaven as we, as the redeemed, stand and worship Jesus Christ. One day, we will find ourselves in heaven's grandstand surrounding God's throne, and we will behold Jesus, the Lamb who was slain for our sins, standing in His glory, and we will respond with heartfelt worship as we have never worshipped Him before. 
And the applause of heaven will grow louder and louder as we grow in our understanding of his worthiness. If you have your Bibles, I, I, you just flip over, flip back over to Revelations chapter 4 and 5. And what we see in these two chapters is we have a glimpse of heavenly worship here. As you read these two chapters, here's the reality that you see. This, this is a reality that John saw in this vision. It's the reality that we are going to. It's where we are moving towards. Here, notice it in your notes. A glimpse of heavenly worship. The Lord God and Jesus Christ are worthy of overwhelming praise from all creation now and forevermore. Now, we don't have time to go through both of these chapters. I'm going to highlight some stuff here. But what you'll notice and what you see in chapter 4 is we see the worship of God Almighty in chapter 4. And in chapter 5, we see the worship of Jesus Christ. And these two chapters show us that both the Father and the Son are worthy of praise from all creation. In, in chapter 4, you notice here, Drop down to verse 8, and, it is, and, and it's around the throne of God. And, what you, and, and here's what it says. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night. In, in other words, this is continuous. Saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. In other words, they are declaring nonstop God's greatness of who he is. And then in verse 9, it's a celebration of God's goodness. Whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, and the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, and now they, they are exalting the glory of God here in verse 11, you are worthy, O Lord to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will... They exist and were created. And then the scene shifts in chapter 5 to Jesus Christ. And in verse 5, here's the vision that John sees. In verse 2, uh, it, the angel comes and he proclaims with this loud voice and he asks this question, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open and so they, they began to cry, but then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And that is in reference to Jesus Christ, the lion, which is a symbol of victory. And that's what John is expecting to see now. And then you drop down, in verse 6, and John says, I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood not a lion, but what? A lamb. And so now Jesus is pictured as the lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. And then he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Verse 8, now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and the golden boughs full of incense, which are of the prayers of the saints. And what did they begin to do in verse 9? They begin to sing. This is awesome. And they sang a new song to Jesus. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood 
out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth, the new earth, the new heavens. And then I looked in verse 11 and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. In other words, a ton of them. Massive. Saying with a loud voice, by the way, do you get the impression here that God likes it loud? God likes his worship loud. And they said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then verse 13, the all of creation in all the universe begins to give worship to both God the Father and God the Son saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And then the four living creatures said, Amen. In other words, let it be. It is true. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. What a glimpse of worship. Heavenly worship that we will be a part of as the redeemed. This is what heaven is all about, folks. It is about the glory of God and the worship of Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait to get there. I know heaven is my home when I die. I know that because for the simple fact that at age 11, man, God began to work in my heart, pricking my soul, convicting me of my sin that I needed a Savior, Jesus Christ. And even though my dad was the pastor of this church at the time, that was not good enough. And I'm laying in bed, and I can't fathom spending my eternity in hell. And it scared me to death. So much so that at 11 years old, I walked into my mom and dad's bedroom. I wake up my mom. And we go into the living room. And we kneel at the couch, and I confess my sins and repent, and God and pleaded with him to save me. Forgive me. Be my Lord and Savior. And it's not because of the words I said. It's not because of a prayer, but because of my faith in the atonement of Jesus Christ that saved me. And by his shed blood. And now I know that if I would die at any moment in my life, my destiny is heaven. But perhaps there are some that you're not sure about that. Because the reality is, probably even in the size of a congregation like this, not everybody even here is going to heaven when they die. Perhaps there are even some moms here that if you opened up your heart to God, you would have to be honest. I'm not sure. Hell may be my final destination. There are only two destinations after we die, and that's either heaven or hell. Hell is the final destination of those whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and heaven is the final destination of those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. 
And so you say, what must I do to enter heaven? Make sure your name is written in the Lamb's book of life by repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ for your forgiveness of sin and eternal life. As we close, let me ask you, do you know for sure your name is written in the Lamb's book of life? Moms, do you know that? Listen, Mother's Day can be your greatest day if you are willing to humble yourself and repent of your sin and confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It can be the day of your salvation. What a great day to celebrate from here on out. Mother's Day is the day of your salvation, moms. But that is true for all of us as we bow our heads and as we prepare for our response time. Man, don't delay this decision. Don't delay coming to Jesus Christ. Don't delay confessing your sin and asking Jesus to forgive you and to grant you eternal life. If you're not sure your final destination heaven, you can know for sure today. You can cry out to him in prayer while the praise team sings right where you're seated.